Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. Yesterday was the last Sunday of the month, which means it was time for another present. Now, my ongoing kitchen remodel... Let me shut my door all the way. That'll cut the barking noise just a little bit. My kitchen remodel is still ongoing, so I got my wall cabinets hung yesterday, which means I did not have the time nor energy to do my reviews, so I'm doing it a day late. But this week's book of the week was The Jazz Age President, Defending Warren G. Harding by Ryan S. Walters. The accompanying cocktail is not a cocktail at all. I'm going to enjoy some straight whiskey um, up, which means that the whiskey is going to be chilled with ice before being strained into a glass without ice. Also, to be sipping whiskey rather than shooting whiskey, it should be aged at least five years. I'll include the link to the article I found that information in, which uh, makes this week's whiskey lead slingers bourbon that I bought for last for the cocktail a few weeks ago, which is aged five years in the barrel. So we're going to try that out. Um, Harding liked his whiskey. Uh, he always had some on hand, regardless of prohibition, which should shock nobody that you know the politicians. Not just Harding, for, for those of you who uh, think that it would just be a Republican thing to do, Wilson also kept his whiskey on hand for medicinal purposes. So let's do this. So, I mean, actually, because it has to chill for a minute, I am going to pour the whiskey straight out. Uh, Warren Gamaliel Harding was born on November 2nd, 1865 in Blooming Grove, Ohio, and he was the oldest of eight children. I dropped bourbon on my phone. Well, that's gonna bode well for my professionalism. I have to go to work. My phone's gonna smell like liquor. Fabulous. Okay, well, I don't think it got into any of the electronics. It just needs to dry now and not smell like bourbon. Not smell like I just poured bourbon on my phone. Okay, so let's see here. He's the oldest of eight children, so he went to Ohio Central College before moving to Marion, Ohio, which would be his home base for the rest of his life. Now, once he moved to Marion, he purchased a newspaper, the Marion Star, which was an unquestionable success, I mean, both financially and, and politically. It did quite, he did quite well for it. He also did this thing called profit sharing with the paper so that all of the employees had a vested interest in the success of the paper. And he was fond of telling his employees, you work with me, not for me. And they all, basically his employees loved him. They, they had nothing unkind to say about him. When he was 25, he married Fran uh, Florence Kling de Wolf, who was the daughter of the wealthiest man in Marion, Amos Kling. Amos had not quite disowned his daughter, but the two of them had had a falling out due to Florence uh, had been part of a common law marriage, which means it was not blessed by the church. She got pregnant and then was abandoned by her husband. Uh, now, none of that meant anything to Harding. He fell in love with her and married her anyways. And she was happy for the offer, not just because of her own falling out with her father, but because Harding had made some savage allegations regarding his soon-to-be father-in-law, basically accusing him of shady financial dealings with the city government. And in retaliation, Amos Kling kind of floated an old rumor that Harding had black blood in his veins. Now, the book does not cover whether or not that is true, but it was a widely rumored, mostly because it was so thoroughly irrelevant. Uh, despite the well-known rumors, Harding was nominated and ultimately elected to the presidency in 1920. But that's many years in the future at this point. Now, Harding's interest in politics was sparked in 1884 when he used his rail pass, which was kind of a perk of, a, of owning a newspaper, to attend the Republican National Convention in, uh, what did he say, 1884. And within four years, he was a delegate to the convention. So he kind of jumped in with both feet and was accepted quite 
early off. And in his entire political career, he only lost two campaigns. The, the first was his race for Marion County Auditor in 1892, and then a bid for Ohio Governor in 1910. Beyond that, he won every political race he ever entered. Uh, the intervening campaign saw him winning two terms in the Ohio State Senate, Ohio State Lieutenant Governor, and U.S. Senate, which is the position he was serving in when he accepted the nomination for president in 1920. Now, Walters does a very good job debunking some popular myths about Harding, uh, starting with the myth that the Republican movers and shakers did a backroom deal in a smoky hotel room to secure his nomination in exchange for cabinet postings. Um, also, this belief that he was a dark horse candidate, prior to his death in 1919, Teddy Roosevelt had been considering running again for president and had actually approached Harding as a possible vice presidential candidate. So he wasn't a dark horse. He was certainly a known quantity. Um, of course, Roosevelt died before that could happen, and Harding was kind of a distant fourth when the Republican convention started in 1920 behind General Leonard Wood, who was favored for his role in World War I in Europe and at the start of the convention had 124 delegates pledged to him. Uh, Hiram Johnson from California was next with 112 delegates. Frank Loudon was the governor of Illinois. He was in third place with 72 delegates, and then Harding was in last place with 39 delegates. None of which mattered when the race started for the nomination because you needed a majority of the delegates to vote for you at the convention, which in 1920 was 984 delegates. So none of them were even close to what was needed, which made it anybody's game. It was all political plays and, and grandstanding and showboating, much like it is now. Uh, and while history likes to claim that Harding's friend and eventual U.S. Attorney General Harry M. Daughtry finagled the nomination for Harding, um, that, that didn't happen. Harding secured the nomination through open assembly via the usual political wheeling and dealing and an open debate at the convention. Now, I mean, Doherty, I don't think, was even there, so he definitely didn't have a part in it. And just kind of for the record, as, as an aside, one of the people who, who most floated that rumor was Alice Roosevelt Longworth, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's daughter. And I kind of feel like I need to know more about her because she was very opinionated and generally not in a way I agree with. She seems like the sort of person who became a Democrat because it would irritate her father, not because she actually had any leanings that way. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but it just seems like she was, her whole political ideology seemed based more on a temper tantrum than actual knowledge. Because she didn't bother to learn anything about Warren G. Harding. She just jumped on Wilson's bandwagon and thought he was, you know, nothing good. So back to Harding. Following his nomination, which was not even attended by Dowertree, as I just said, um, he, I mean, Doherty wasn't even uh, like a delegate at large, so he didn't attend the convention. Harding became the very clear front runner when Johnson and Wood became deadlocked. Neither side of the delegates would give an inch, each insisting that they wanted their guy. So Harding kind of leapt to the front uh, as a compromise candidate, if you will. And once he secured the nomination, he did the very politic thing, which was to ask Hiram Johnson of California to be his running mate. Uh, at this time, California was one of the fastest growing states and with its rich reserves of oil and gold deposits, very fertile farm valleys, Johnson was very much a force to be reckoned with. And it is believed that in 1916, when Charles Evans Hughes was the Republican nominee and was campaigning in California, he failed to meet with, John, uh, I believe it was Governor Johnson then, uh, who was even staying at the same hotel, and it was basically like to snub her around the world because he failed to meet with him. California went for Wilson, and so Hughes was never made president. And 
Harding was determined not to repeat that snub and possibly cost himself the presidency. So he immediately offered the vice presidency to Johnson, which Johnson declined. Harding then offered it to Calvin Coolidge, who had kind of earned national renown by dealing with the police union strike in, I think it was 1918, when Coolidge was the governor of Massachusetts. I might be misremembering some of Coolidge's details. So they'll come up again next month, I'm sure. Now, one thing that even people who adamantly disliked Harding acknowledged like pretty universally is that he was a kind man. He was a very kind man. He he was liked by many. And not not the people who disliked him, obviously. But many people and even some people who disliked him at first came to like him after they actually met him and talked with him because he had such a kind disposition. Uh, and he was very honest. And he was well known for his honesty, which we're definitely going to come back to, given some of the scandals that occurred during his presidency, which kind of rocketed him to the bottom of most lists of presidents and made many believe that he was not a likely president. Wilson certainly seemed to think so. Wilson was kind of convinced that the nation loved Wilson, loved his League of Nations, loved everything about the Democratic Party, and that... that um, they would never vote for Harding. And part of that was probably Wilson's belief that Harding was part black and the nation would never vote for a black man. So thought that didn't age well, President Wilson. All right, we're going to see what this goes like. Me and whiskey are not the bestest of friends. I tend to get hungover when I drink whiskey. When I, when I drink whiskey straight. Cocktails I'm fine with. But we'll, we'll see how this goes. Like my last really big hangover was from whiskey. My last two really big hangovers were from whiskey. I'm a terrible Irish person in that regard. In 1920, the rumor of Harding's being part black didn't matter outside of the South, and Harding's win was an absolute bloodbath. He took 60% of the popular vote. 16 million v people voted for him versus the Democratic nominee, James Cox, who only won 9 million votes. The Electoral College reflected this lopsided win with Harding claiming 404 votes to Cox's 127. So it was an absolute bloodbath. And with that... Harding was sworn in as the 29th president on March 4th, 1921. That's not too bad. It does have a little bit of a burn to it. It's got a rich flavor, though. God, I wonder if it says what kind of barrel this was aged in. It does not. It does not. But it's not bad. Now, once he was sworn in, he said about changing America for the better. Uh, like all presidents, his first task was assigning his cabinet, and his picks were absolutely stellar. Uh, he actually started by advising Vice President Coolidge that Coolidge would be needed to sit, on all, sit in on all cabinet meetings, which was a wild deviation from how things had been done up until now. At this point, and in fact, the Constitution actually views the vice president as a part of the legislative branch, not the executive. And his sole job is to sit in, in at all senator meetings and break any ties that occur. So that makes him legislative, not executive. But... By this point in history, we've had, let's see here, we had William Henry Harrison, you had Zachary Taylor, you had three assassinations, five guy in office? All right. How many presidents had died prior to Warren G. Harding? I think it's five. Yeah, he's the sixth. Okay, I'm right. We had William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor died, William Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley were assassinated, Harding dies in office. Spoiler alert, folks. Um, and then we have uh, one more death by natural causes and one more assassination. So we've had six presidents die in office. So Harding was well aware that that was a possibility, that, that he could, in fact, not live out his term. And he didn't want Coolidge to be unprepared should that happen, which puts him head and shoulders above the rest of the presidents because they all just, 
their poor VPs were blindsided by the fact they suddenly had to step in and take power. I actually still feel really bad for um, Arthur, Chester A. Arthur, who, who seriously was like, fuck, was not expecting that. So anyways, Coolidge ended up sitting in on all cabinet meetings, and cabinet meetings were held on, I think, Tuesday and Friday or something like that. Like twice a week he held cabinet meetings, uh, full cabinet meetings to which everybody attended and everybody participated, including Coolidge. Um, so Coolidge already knew the state of the nation, what was happening where, and all of this was due to his twice weekly cabinet meeting participation. Crap, I have a typo here. Let me fix that. There we go. Now, Harding was not a micromanager. He had a gift for picking the exact right person to delegate a task to, with three notable exceptions, which I will come back to. That's part of the scandals that, that kind of destroyed his good name, if you will. Uh, Harding was unquestionably a good worker. I know that people like to say he was lazy, but in fact he was not. He routinely put in 16 and 17 hour days and his typical work week was 84 hours. So take that. Making him one of the hardest working presidents we've ever had. And we know this from like the White House ushers who keep track of the president's schedule. And of course the Secret Service by this time had been tapped to be presidential bodyguards. And they, can, they all attested to how hard working he was. Now, some of his brilliant picks included uh, Charles Evans Hughes, former frontrunner for presidency in 1916. He'd also been a Supreme Court judge before stepping down for the presidential nomination. Hughes was made Secretary of State. He did brilliantly. Andrew Mellon was the Secretary of the Treasury. John Weeks was the Secretary of War. Herbert Hoover was the Secretary of Commerce. Now, Mellon, at this point in history, had an established wealth of like three, between 300 and 400 million dollars, and that's in 1920s dollars, which would make him a billionaire in today's currency. And he was unquestionably a brilliant pick, and he is acknowledged historically, even by those who despise Harding, as basically the second most brilliant Secretary of Treasury behind Alexander Hamilton. So he knew what he was about when he said about making the changes, which... I basically said all of that just as a preface to this. So beginning in January 1920, so before anybody had even been nominated, America fell into a financial depression following Wilson's war, Wilson's bad policies, which were all implemented on the passing of the uh, 16th Amendment and the Federal Reserve Act. Now, personally, I probably would have pushed for the repeal of the Federal Reserve Act. It's only been eight years. It's not exactly sunk in stone. It's not constitution. It's not, it's not part of the constitution, although it was passed constitutionally. So I'm not saying it's necessarily illegal, just despicable. But what Mellon did worked as well in the moment. See, Wilson's policies had taken American debt from 1.2 billion in 1916, and it had ballooned to 26 billion by 1919. So that is an absolutely absurd increase in debt. Um, just three short years, had skyrocketed American debt, thanks to Wilson's war, basically. Under Wilson, the income tax, which had been sold to the American people as a tax on the wealthy only, came to be 77% on the wealthiest Americans, who then opted to hide their wealth on uh, various bonds, much as they do today when the income tax increases up too much, creeps up too much. Now, this is nothing new, all right? So what Mellon did is he lowered the income tax across the board. He also put a stop to inflation by having the Federal Reserve stop printing money. Stop printing money. The second most brilliant Secretary of Treasury we've ever had said if you want to stop inflation, you got to stop printing money. 
So just stop. During the war years, the Federal Reserve had increased the money supply by 1,000%, which is almost nothing compared to what they're doing today. I mean, the printers haven't stopped printing in years at this point. This in turn caused prices to rise as there was now more money floating around, which we should all be familiar with since we are going through it now. So Mellon lowered the income tax on the wealthiest Americans from 77% to 32%. What Mellon knew, but most Congress creators today and then didn't seem capable of grasping, is that if the income tax is too high, people will avoid paying taxes by simply refusing to work. Ponder that for a moment, everybody. If all of your money is just going to go to paying the government, people are going to stop working. Mellon also raised the corporate taxes to 12.5%, up from, I think it was 10%, and allowed for capital gains tax on 12.5%. So he wasn't uh, blind to the fact that the government needs money. He just wanted to change the source of the income from, you know, just taking it from people. So... I mean, it wasn't all lowered, basically. He did raise some, but he also made the taxes not so horrifyingly onerous that people simply stopped paying them. And one really cool thing that Wilson failed to ever recognize is that part of the reason people were able to get away with not paying taxes is there actually wasn't an IRS back then. Or rather, if it was, it did not have the broad sweeping powers it has now. People were entirely self-reporting their taxes and uh, guess how many chose not to report accurately? It's kind of hard to blame them. By July 1921, or 2021, Four months of a change in, in, in regime had ended this depression because of the change in fiscal policy advocated by Mellon and supported by Harding. Business was flourishing. Mellon also explained to both Congress and the American people what, again, is obvious to all but the most willfully stupid, which is that the government does not actually make money. The only source of income for the government is by taking it from the American people. He ended many government programs that were profoundly wasteful, and they cut huge swaths through federal employment, laying off people who were doing nothing but wasting time. Could never do that today. Um, Harding also created a Bureau of the Budget, putting in charge Charles Dawes. The Bureau of the Budget was brand new, and for the first time, the executive actually had a budget to work with, and this entailed cutting spending. So again, they removed people from federal service who were not actually working. So you can't cut taxes and not cut spending commensurate to those taxes. All right, if you're going to cut the source of income, you also got to cut the source of spending. And between Mellon and Dawes, the Harding administration cut spending by $1.8 billion by the end of 1922. Oh, excuse me. Cut spending by $1.8 billion. Between Mellon and Dawes, the Harding administration had cut spending by $1.8 billion, and by the end of 1922, the federal budget had a surplus of $736 billion. The prior year's surplus, so 1921, had only been $509 million. So that's an absolutely explosive amount of growth from cutting taxes and stopping inflation and cutting spending. Well, like, stunning. Um, 
Mellon also convinced the Federal Reserve Board to cut interest rates to 5% and then refinance some of the war loans at the lower interest rate, which saved the American taxpayers $200 million. Like peanuts in today's trillions, but an enormous sum back then. Uh, by the third year of Harding's administration, the national debt had fallen to $22.3 billion from a post-war high of $25 billion, which sounds small, but is actually enormous when you consider how large a billion is. And this was helped in large part by the surpluses that Dawes and Mellon had managed to wrangle out of our mangled economy that Wilson had left when he stepped down as president. Now, Harding also believed strongly in America first. He was against Wilson's League of Nations and allowed Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes kind of a free hand in negotiating a payout from Europe. Because remember, we loaned Europe a great deal of money. That's where a lot of that you know, $25 billion debt came from was loaning money to Europe that now needed to be repaid. So Hughes sat down with the European nations who were all for America just forgiving the enormous loans. Like, no, nah, man, this is all among friends. We shouldn't have to pay that, right? We're back. We're buddies, right? And Hughes is like, no, you're, you're going to pay us back, but we'll come up with some good terms for you since we are friends. And uh, basically the workable payment tables would ultimately see the money that Europe owed America paid in full by 1984 at an interest rate of 3% for the first 10 years and 3.5% for the rema remainder. Now, Harding was not necessarily against immigration, uh, but his belief in America first had him pumping the brakes on the mass influx of European immigrants who were flooding American markets with cheap labor. Uh, additionally, the immigrants were bringing with them radical Bolshevism, which had already sowed mass anarchy during the war years in the form of bombs and bodies falling. This incidentally makes it easier kind of to understand Wilson's take on jailing dissidents if those dissidents are engaging in domestic terrorism. But Harding, once the war was over and peace was established, he started pardoning those who had been jailed for voicing dissent. I mean, not anybody, I don't remember if they actually caught anybody who threw the bombs, but if they were just in jail because they had a different opinion, he started pardoning them. Um, I mean, he built bridges with all of the nations that Wilson and Roosevelt before him had burnt, restoring our standing with both Latin America, namely Colombia and Panama, and with Mexico, which Wilson had duly screwed up like royally screwed up, but he, he made peace with Mexico and we had a good relation with our neighbors to the south and also with Japan. Um, I mean, for everything he accomplished, as far as building these bridges with other nations, Harding was nominated for two Nobel Prizes. I think 1921 and 1923 he was nominated. Despite all of those brilliant things he managed to accomplish in the two years and four months that he sat in the White House before dying of a stroke on August 2nd, 1923, those are all overshadowed by bad historians who are incapable of digging for truth behind the scandals that came to overshadow his presidency. So what are those scandals? Because you can't not talk about them, right? They, they were big enough to sink his reputation, so we have to address the, the, address the elephant in the room. First up was the Veterans Bureau. So following World War I, it was acknowledged that we needed to take care of the men returning from the front who had received injuries. I think one of the last bills, if not the last bill, that Wilson signed into law as he left the White House for Harding's inauguration was a bill creating a new Veterans Bureau. Since it was now law, and Harding truly did see the need for it. Like I said, he was a very kind man and he understood the needs of the people, including when to get the hell out of the way. But in this case... He acknowledged that we needed to do something for the men who had fought over there, that we had pushed into it, basically. Uh, he made sure that the Bureau was well-funded, and he placed in charge of the Bureau um, 
Charles Forbes, who had previously worked in the Wilson administration. Just gonna let that one sit for a minute. Forbes was doing contract work on the new naval base at Pearl Harbor when then Senator Harding met him. And Forbes created quite an impression on Harding and on Harding's wife, Mrs. Harding uh, Florence, pressured Harding into giving Forbes a position when Harding won. And with as well-funded as the Bureau was, and it was quite well-funded, uh, it was all too easy for Forbes to start skimming off the top, which he did. He also took kickbacks on land purchases and hospital constructions, sold government medical supplies and uh, for less than their value, and then pocketed the difference, and it left the, the veterans' hospitals lacking needed supplies. Now, Harding, when he found out, he hit the roof, all right? And this is something that most historians, in fact, I'm going to say all of the ones who place him at the bottom of the rankings have completely overlooked the fact that we have an independent witness to this. A New York Times reporter was present when Harding got the news and reported that Harding cornered Forbes in the White House and shouted, quote, you double-crossing bastard, grabbing Forbes by the throat and shaking him like a dog would a rat, end quote. Harding demanded and got Forbes' resignation, but would die before seeing Forbes prosecuted for the fraud and bribery of which Forbes was convicted and spent two years in federal prison. The Veterans Bureau attorney, Charles F. Kramer, who was also presumably caught up in the scandal, would later kill himself from the shame and the scandal. So Harding was proactive in dealing with um, bad actors who were acting under his authority. Now, the next major scandal occurred in Dougherty's Justice Department, primarily through the office of one Jesse Smith, which is interesting because Smith was not actually an employee of the Justice Department. He didn't draw any government salary. Salary. He only had an office in the building at the behest of Dougherty. Now, Smith engaged in good old political graft and corruption by selling access to the government. Pardons, liquor licenses, offices, judgeships, if it flowed through the Justice Department, it was for sale through the office of Jesse Smith with Dougherty's blessing. Now, that technically is speculation. Dougherty was tried twice, but it never resulted in a conviction. Dougherty would um, plead the Fifth Amendment and end up in a hung jury, so he was never actually convicted of vice and graft. But it's very hard to believe, like it strains credulity to think that Dougherty was not aware of what was going on with his best good buddy Jesse Smith who he had given an office in the Justice Department building but was not paying a salary to so pretty sure Dougherty knew about it. It's also important to note that while Dougherty had rented a house on H Street in Washington DC and Harding and the First Lady did dine with Dougherty at this residence the house where all the swinging parties and corruption occurred was quote the little greenhouse on K Street not H Street and Harding was never at the house on K Street. And he genuinely didn't know what was going on until he did. And he was just as enraged with Dougherty when this happened. Uh, Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover reported in his memoirs what happened to Smith. So Hoover was apparently there for that. So again, independent eyewitnesses. Quote, the president called for Smith to meet him at the White House, confronting him about the activities, then told him that he would be arrested in the morning. But Smith went home, burned all his papers, and committed suicide. End quote. Apparently, Harding was quite terrifying when he was enraged at the people who pissed him off. Now, of these two incidents, Harding is known to have said, quote, 
my God, this is a hell of a job. I have no trouble with my enemies. I can't, I can take care of my enemies. All right. But damn my friends, my goddamn friends. They're the ones that keep me walking the floors at night. The most infamous though, the one, the one that most people will actually tie directly to Harding is the teapot dome scandal. So this actually involved oil reserves in Teapot Dome, Wyoming and Elk Hills, California, which had been earmarked for use by the U.S. Navy. So accordingly, because they were supposed to be naval oil reserves, the Secretary of Navy, Edwin Denby, was placed in charge of those reserves. Secretary of Interior Albert Fall convinced Denby to transfer control of those reserves to the Department of the Interior. Harding trusted Fall's judgment, signed an executive order authorizing the transfer. Now, Fall, at this time, was experiencing personal financial hardship and accepted bribes totaling more than $400,000 from two oil men, Henry Sinclair and Edward Doheny, to lease these oil reserves and drill them. And this all became very suspicious very quickly when Fall's finances suddenly improved. Unfortunately, we don't know how Harding would have reacted because this scandal did not break until after Harding's death, and it's been used as proof positive of his cluelessness, but as Walters points out Harding did not benefit from any of these scandals and the ones he knew about he acted swiftly to dismiss from service and acknowledge the matter um, publicly. I mean he, he felt genuinely betrayed by those closest to him who had brought such shame to the White House under his administration and there are many who believe that the scandals weighed so heavily on his heart that they contributed to the heart attack and then stroke that ultimately killed him while he was on a national tour which kind of turned his restful retreat into a funeral train home. And the nation truly mourned him when he died. They, they lined up by the millions along the tracks carrying his body home for burial. And by, but unfortunately, by the time his memorial stone was ready for dedication, the Teapot Dome scandal had broken, and Coolidge did not feel that he could dedicate the memorial because of the, pol the, the political landmine that had popped up around Harding. Um, Herbert Hoover had no such reservations, and he delivered a heartfelt eulogy for the fallen president. Now, in addition to the national scandals, we do know via DNA evidence that he did have at least one extramarital affair, which resulted in the only child of Warren G. Harding. Um, and all of that is muckraked by historians who want to acknowledge the who don't want to acknowledge the massive good that Harding did for post-war America. Uh, as a direct result of his policies, gross domestic product experienced a 7% year-over-year growth from 1922 to 1927, so long outlived him. Manufacturing output was at, uh, uh, for comparison, for comparison to that 7% year-over-year growth, we're absolutely ecstatic when we get to a 4% growth, which we don't get a lot of these days because of inflation. Manufacturing output was at 64% per worker, um, was at 64% output per worker was at 40%. The 1920 saw the nation's wealth climb from less than 70 billion in 1921 when Harding took office to topping out at over 103 billion by 1929. So we had a very strong decade starting with the policies Harding put into effect. The national debt was 26 billion when Harding took office and had fallen to 17 billion in 1929 as the decade closed. Um, the pro this prosperity brought a lot of technolo technological advances, and America lit up, literally. By 1929, two-thirds of American households were wild wired for electricity, and Americans were buying cars. Roads were being built as a result of Harding's freeway, federal highway bill. 
This in turn created two brand new industries, that of the roadside motel and roadside cafes. And Harding's policies accomplished a second gilded age of unprecedented prosperity for America. I mean, the first one lasted from approximately 1877 to 1900. This one lasted just nine short years, right? Started March 4th, 1921 when Harding took office, ended October 31st, 1929 when the stock market crashed. And that crash, as Walters points out in his book, was a result of Hoover's policies, not Harding's. That cannot be laid at Harding's feet. The subtitle of this book is Defending Warren G. Harding, and, and he needs defending from the slanderous muckrakers who only think of the scandals surrounding his administration and not of the incredible good that he accomplished. Um, the people that his policies helped, his own reaction to the scandals, none of those are ever considered by the, the historians who um, just focus on the fact that Teapot Dome happened on his watch. Um, I'm a little bit behind in updating my presidential ranking list, but he's kind of moving up towards the top right now, uh, just for the spectacular changes that he made to the American con economy and for the American people. I mean, in just 881 days, he accomplished more than JFK did, but is vilified for it by the historians who do not deserve that title. And uh, that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you guys on Sunday. Bye.